Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I mean, you you say it in the book, and I believe this strongly, that happiness is not necessarily the events that happen to you, but how you think about them later. But I find that that's easy to read and intellectually acknowledge, but when it's actually happening to you, it's like almost impossible to live by that 18 you're homeless 19 things start to change what happens then i never thought that i would become a musician i didn't even have dreams of becoming a professional singer it was just something i enjoyed doing i didn't know to dream about it the reason i went to singing when i was homeless is because i couldn't hold down other jobs because i kept getting sick so much it was just strictly survival So, Jewel, I'm reading your book, and I can't take it. Like, you, you've survived all these incredibly difficult moments, and I don't think if I was 19 years old and homeless and living in a car and have nothing to my name, I actually don't think I would have survived, or I would have just, like, totally fallen off a cliff. <laughs> so what? What we're going to go into everything about your book. By the way, the book is called, sorry for being so haphazard, it's called Never Broken, Songs Are Only Half the Story. Great book. I read it. And uh, uh, again, 19 years old. You have so many down and out moments, actually. We're going to get to all of them. You're like, you could have called this down and out. My name is Jewel. But what happened at 19? Um, gosh, where to start? It was 18 when I became homeless. Um, my boss propositioned me. He took me aside one day, and I thought he was going to reprimand me for not being very good at my job. It turns out he... Uh, tried to have sex with me, and when I turned him down, he wouldn't give me my paycheck, and so I got kicked out where I was living. I hate when that happened to me. I know, right? Everybody has that story. Actually, (laughs) Actually, a lot of people do have that story, a lot of females for sure. Um, And so that's how I ended up living in my car. I didn't think it was that big a deal because I grew up in a saddle barn, you know, with all men and no room to myself. Where they keep saddles in a barn. So there's a barn, and then there's all just saddles, and then there are beds? Yeah. Um, my this dad, is in Alaska, right? Yeah. But, but just to make sure. I'll go somewhat chronologically. So my family were pioneers. They came from Europe during the Second World War. Um, they were one of the last to make it out on like the last ship. My grandma was actually on the last ship. And there had been this group of artists, and they wanted to form this utop- utopian artistic colony outside of uh, the war. And so they found out that the government would give you land in Alaska for free if you were willing to go up there and just not die for a whole winter. So they sent the scout ahead, my grandfather, 
nobody ended up joining him except my grandmother. And so they started a life up there where um, she was an aspiring opera singer. And so she gave up those dreams and to all of her children to sing and write and play instruments. Uh, and so I was raised in this very beautiful place uh, in Homer, Alaska on a homestead. Homesteading is when you live off the land. So it's not traditional agricultural uh, ranching for profit. It's really actually just for subsistence. Um, so like what would you, what would they grow? Uh, everything. They cleared about 200 acres by hand. They sowed Timothy bluegrass for hay. So they cut all the hay by hand. My dad's childhood photos look like the 1800s. You wouldn't think it was the 1950s. Um, you could only get to town by horse and wagon on low tide on the beach. Um, only thing they bought was sugar and salt. So everything else, you had to kill it or can it or starve. So that's how my dad was raised. So my mom left us when I was eight. We were living in Anchorage and my dad took us back to the homestead. And so the saddle barn got converted into a living space. We took the saddles out and put beds in. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I tend to be a serial interrupter. Mm -hmm. So I just get curious about things. So your, your mom leaves you when you're eight and... I guess you must have had some sense that that was an odd thing that, mm -hmm. you know, leaving the mother and staying, all the kids staying with the father. Was your dad like depressed at this or what was what was happening in his life at that moment? I would have been depressed if yeah. my uh, ex-wife left me with all my kids at yeah. know, when, when they were eight. I didn't know that she had left. I knew my family was getting a divorce. I actually didn't find out till I was an adult that it kind of went down the way that it did. Um, my my, I just remember them saying they were getting a divorce. That was, of course, very crushing. Um, and we were living with my dad, and that's just sort of seemed to be the way it was. And it's funny with kids. You don't tend to question things. They just are. Um, and my dad had very little coping mechanisms. It was very hard for him. He uh, was raised in an abusive household and, you know, swore that he would never become an abusive parent because who wants to be? You know, when you're being a child and you're being hit, it feels terrible. And you go, I'm never going to do this when I grow up. But all that does is create a vacuum um, because we're each taught an emotional language in our households. And unless you learn a new language, all you have is a vacuum. So if push comes to shove, you're going to revert to the language that you know. How, how do you, you know, you have, you have a son, Case, he's five years old. How mm -hmm. do you, uh, how do you, how did you learn a new language so that you obviously don't turn into an abusive parent? Yeah. Um, we inherit a lot from our families. You know, there's the genetic inheritance, physical inheritance, and an emotional inheritance. And I knew that at 15 when I moved out. Um, I moved out at 15 because my dad was abusive. And I thought, you know, why live in a cabin with a guy who's mean to me if I could just live in a cabin by myself? So, By the way, you just dropped another bomb. We're going to have to interrupt <laughs> later, but go ahead. <laughs> um, and I knew at that time that statistically girls like me end up repeating the cycles they're raised by. So I knew when I looked at, you know, what I was calling emotional English of my family, I knew that that meant I was destined for this life of... Um, abuse or to be in an abusive relationship. And so my life's work became at that moment when I was 15 to look at nature versus nurture. And if I didn't receive good nurture, could I ever get to know my real nature? And, and could I re-nurture really myself? you really knew that at 15? Yeah, I called it my happiness journal as I started keeping a journal. I'd read quite a bit of philosophy. I had a really good teacher that had me reading a lot um, when I was probably 13 and 14. So the time I moved out at 15, I had read quite a bit of Greek philosophy and was familiar with concepts like nature versus nurture. And I thought, you know, maybe my mind can get me out of this. Maybe if I'm clever and I look for the pitfalls and the the traps, maybe I can avoid being a statistic. It actually turned out it wasn't my mind that saved me, but I wouldn't know that for many years. <laughs> well, I, I don't think that's true, actually. From from reading the book, it looked like repeatedly your, your mind plus action saved you. I mean, actions start with thoughts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
I think there's a line in the in the book. Uh, uh, shadows are, or emotions are the shadows of thoughts. Mm-hmm. So at some point, they're all connected, mm-hmm. and they have to start with some kind of positive outlook. And living in a car at age 18 is probably goes against every attempt to have a positive outlook. Mm-hmm. So okay, so you're 15. You go to school at an art school in Michigan. You raise the money. Oh, by the way, yeah, actually, even before that, what was really amazing about your story too is. You really started singing professionally at an early age. You and your dad were singing at bars all around Alaska, it mm-hmm. sounds like. It sounds like such an incredible experience. Like on the surface, it's this like incredible artistic experience. Like, oh, I grew up in a homesteading yeah. you know, house and we just sang all the time. And that's how I learned how to create a career as a singer yeah. and develop this talent. But then all these things happen in the middle. It was both. You know, I had a really beautiful childhood. It was very creative at its best and abusive at its worst. It's true for a lot of people's lives. You know, it's not all good and not all bad. But I I feel like you had it at extremes because Mm -hmm. I think... Um, it's a it was of great benefit to you to to also have those thousands of hours pr- uh, experience not just singing but performing yeah. in front of adults in a bar who so you have to figure out how to keep their attention mm-hmm. too. This must have been incredibly difficult for a young person. Yeah, I started singing on stage when I was five. My parents did a show in hotels for tourists. Um, the first time I ever got on stage, I got the hiccups while I was yodeling, which makes yodeling sound impossibly more ridiculous than it already sounds. Um, this is a stupid question. What yeah. is yodeling? Yodeling is when you go from your low register voice to your high register, and you go across that line in your voice. Do you sing at all? No. No. So, My daughters do. Oh, really? But yeah. they don't yodel. Yeah, so country singers have a yodel crack often, or the cranberry singer, duh, uh, uh, that's yodeling. It's just not the tongue twister involved with the yodeling, but yeah. That's and so yodeling. were you yodeling all over Alaska? I was quite the young little yodeler, yes. Excellent. I was on morning shows yodeling and things like that, advertising the so show for let, my family. So let's say you're in a bar and you're 12 years old and everybody starts fighting, like in a bar fight, which I imagine must have happened at some point. How do you <laughs> keep people's interest or do you just get off the stage? I never saw bar fights happen a ton. It was usually like one-on-one. I never saw like a big movie scene, you know, full bar fight breakout. Um, but the cops would get called sometimes because somebody was overdosing or things like that. And I would go hide in the bathroom so the cops wouldn't, you know, bust the joint for having an underage kid singing in there. Oh, you were uh, underage kids. I know they're not allowed to drink, but you're not even allowed to sing in a bar? Yeah, you're not <laughs> supposed to be in there, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so so 15, you move out, which is, of course the oddest thing in the world, but <laughs> we'll skip it because you went to you went to a school for the arts in Michigan, so a couple thousand miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, you managed to raise the money for it, and it was in, it's an incredible story that's in the book. And I and I really want to get to 18, you're homeless, 19, things start to change. What happens then? Mm-hmm. Um, so after graduating high school, I went to take care of my mom. She was in San Diego, and she was sick. So I went down to pay rent and help take care of her. Um, and that's when my boss fired me for not having sex with him. That's how I ended up living in my car. My mom moved into her car. We both thought, you know what? It'll last a couple months. I'll get a new job. I'll save up enough for a deposit on a new apartment and get back on my feet. And, and okay, stupid question again. Mm-hmm. Just the mechanics of sleeping in a car. Is it because you were like, you're, I don't know how tall you were, like 5'2", five, 5'1"? Five, five, oh, 5'6". <laughs> I didn't even know. So 5'6", you can't fit in the backseat of a car. What mm-hmm. did you do? Um, the I had a little car that had a back seat that folded down, and okay. so I, I had a futon that was in the house that I was living in, and I just put the futon kind of over this folded down back seat, and uh, it it kind of worked. Okay, all right. Um, I just needed to yeah get a little check. visual. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so so then then you start. Okay, um, sorry, I interrupted. Not at all. Um, so 
that's how I ended up in my car. And then my mom went back to Alaska um, and I ended up staying there thinking I was going to get back on my feet, but I had bad kidneys and I got sick all the time and a lot of stress, obviously, in my life. And uh, I had a kidney infection and I went into the hospital to try and get treated for it and they turned me away because I didn't have insurance. And, oh my gosh, uh, so what would have happened? Uh, I mean, is that even, I don't I don't really yeah. know the law. Like if you're having an infection, you're a kid, you're dying. I know. Aren't they I supposed to like take you? I think in the it might have been illegal. You know, it's funny, I had such a bad fever at the time. Um, I just remember being very busy in there and them shooing me, you don't have insurance, you know what I mean? And just kind of getting, getting turned away. Um, I'm sure if I'd advocated for myself or stood up, I just, I, it was all a haze and I was so sick and I ended up being too sick to drive anywhere else. And so I just sat in the my car and was throwing up all over myself. I had blood poisoning from kidney failure. And luckily a doctor had seen me get turned away and he tapped on my window and gave me antibiotics in his business card. And he treated me for free for many, many years, actually well into me becoming famous, which was, he was like an angel in my life. And then- What if um, he had never showed up? Would you have died? I think so. That's what the urologist had said. Um, yeah, your kidney infections are really serious thing, and it, it needs serious treatment. So, yeah. Um, and then the car I was living in got stolen, and that's how I ended up becoming homeless. And it lasted about a year, and it was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. Where did you stay then? Um, I stayed at a variety of places. There was a little bush that I really liked um, that I had flowers, and I would sleep under that. I ended up borrowing money from somebody to buy another car. Uh, so I could have a, a safe place to to stay. Um, and, you know, I ate by going to happy hours and just having the free potatoes and chips, you know, that they put out at bars. I never drank. Uh, and you just learn to get by, you know, wash your hair in bathroom sinks and those types of things. All right. Well, that's a lesson on uh, being homeless for a year. <laughs> <laughs> so then, then, but you were still... You were still pursuing the singing, obviously. You had, you had. I had never pursued it, actually. Um, I grew up singing with my dad. It was like a blue collar job. We did cover songs and he wrote some songs, but he had given up his dreams of becoming a nationally known singer when my mom left. And it just sort of became this like blue collar gig. You know, you do five hour sets in bars while people drink and eat. Nothing that sexy. I never thought that I would become a musician. I didn't even have dreams of becoming a professional singer. It was just something I enjoyed doing, um, but I didn't think I had a hope of, you know, but becoming if you hadn't famous. Done that, if you hadn't done that as a child, like these five-hour sets, I don't know how many times a week from the ages of, you know, eight, five to 15, um, do you think you would have had the performance experience to do what you were able to do later on? Absolutely not. It's certainly, um, it's just, I didn't know to dream about it. You know, my life didn't lead me to dreaming of like, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a famous singer. Like that was not in my, you know, my whole paradigm. Um, the reason I went to singing when I was homeless is because I couldn't hold down other jobs because I kept getting sick so much. And uh, I was like, God, I used to get paid a couple hundred bucks a night to sing. I wonder if I could go find a gig somewhere. And it was just strictly survival. Um, I'd begun writing my own songs and I was looking at coffee shops and no coffee shops would pay you. In fact, they wanted to charge you to play there. Um, and so it was like, well, now what am I going to do? I finally found a coffee shop that was going out of business. And I said, hey, if I bring in customers, you know, I get to keep all the door money and you can keep the food and beverages. And so we struck a deal and then I needed to start getting people to come seeing me. Um, and so that's when I started... Uh, passing out flyers and doing whatever I could to try and get a following. So you were like a manager, a marketing machine, a performer. <laughs> you did you did the whole thing. That year was just incredible. Um, the first part of the year was really difficult. You know, my car getting stolen, stolen, being homeless, the sick. Were you uh, depressed when you found out your car was stolen? Obviously you were, but like, how do you, how do you even try to bounce back from that? 
Um, my life has brought me to my knees over and over and resiliency is really nothing other than, you know, the stubborn, well, success, I'll say. Success is like just stubbornness, like I'm going to keep standing up. And that's really just comes down to the grittiness of saying I'm going to keep standing up. I mean, you, you say it in the book, and I believe this strongly, that happiness is not necessarily the events that happen to you, but how you think about them later. Mm -hmm. But I find that that's easy to read and intellectually acknowledge, but when it's actually happening to you, it's like almost impossible to yeah. live by that. Like, I'm going to be happy later. I need to, a bed to sleep on yeah. now. Yeah, I have two thoughts on that. One is, you know, what makes us special as humans? Why are why is being a human being unique? Um I think it's that we're able to take thoughts and dreams and put them into action and create things out of them. We build cities. We we build something out of nothing. It's an incredible power of being human. Um, but when you're reduced to an animal, you don't have that luxury. You know, that is a luxury. When you're reduced to homelessness and those types of things where your standard of living is stuck on survive, all of your creativity is just used on, am I going to eat today? Where am I going to sleep? And how am I going to stay safe? Um, and so it's a very demoralizing thing to be in that type of position where you're just stuck on survive mode. Um, and the other thing, you know, as I looked at that concept of I was starting to shoplift a lot, um, it started with carrots, which apparently are the gateway vegetable because that's when it led to the harder stuff like imported pistachios and things. I was and also, very <laughs> you're never going to, you know what? No one in history ever got caught shoplifting carrots because no one would ever believe that someone wants to steal a carrot. Like, that's just disgusting. Like, I would steal like a pack of Oreos or something like that, but who steals carrots? Well, somebody who's sick it's a the lot. healthy shoplifter. I was Watch the out for her. I know. Oh, just let her go. She's the healthy shoplifting kid. Um, but there was this one day, you know, when I, there's a sundress and I coveted it. And so I went in this window and I wanted to steal it. And uh, I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror, like shoving this dress into my baggy jeans I was wearing. And I was like, oh shit, I'm a statistic. I didn't beat the odds. You know, three short years later, I am a statistic. I'm having panic attacks. I'm agoraphobic and I'm stealing and I'm going to end up in jail or dead in short order. Um, and then I remember this quote by Buddha that I had read that happiness doesn't depend on who we are or what we have. It depends on what we think. And that's all I had left. I had the great luxury of having nothing else to distract me. Um, and if the building blocks of our lives really are thoughts, then what blocks was I working with? I wanted to really try and get a grip on what was I thinking. But at the time, I didn't have the capacity to self-monitor and witness my thoughts in real time. And so I started watching my hands because if you want to see what you're thinking, just watch what your hands are doing because they're I, the servants of your thought. I mean, I thought that was so interesting. So you, you talk about it in the book, how you were, you were watching your hands and you kind of give us a su suggestion. Like you were watching how many times you open doors for others because that's an example of uh, that you're doing these acts of kindness, which in turn will make you happier and so on. But uh, I've never heard of that before, actually. That's a good kind of mindfulness mm. technique. Yeah. But um, what else would you watch in your hands? Like I don't, like right now I'm kind of moving my hands around <laughs> as I talk to you, but like what else would signify for my hands that I'm either happy or sad or stressed or whatever? By strictly observing and not trying to intervene in my behavior, but by getting very curious about my behavior, um, it made me just keep a log sort of all day of like, oh, this is when I shook hands. This is when I opened doors. This is when I refused to, to shake hands. Oh, I didn't shake hands all day. I didn't shake hands for a week. Um, this is my hand stealing. This is my hands writing. Two very, you know, different things. Um, and it was interesting. It, A, got me in touch with what I was thinking. I quit believing myself. Like flat out, all of my behavior showed me that I quit believing I was capable of earning even $40 to buy a dress, much less support myself. So, so your behavior, meaning like the shoplifting, mm -hmm. sort of showed you that you were that you felt, not mm -hmm. that you were incapable, but that mm -hmm. you felt you were incapable. I quit believing in myself, yeah. 
Um, but it had an interesting side effects I didn't really realize at the time when I started this watching my hands experiment is you that it forced me to be. <laughs> oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, much later, my OCD, much later. Um, no, it forced me to be in the moment and it forced me to be present. And that had a really interesting impact on my anxiety. Every time I just was focusing on what was right in front of me presently, my anxiety really calmed down. And I learned a lot about fear and anxiety, that fear is this thief and it takes the past and it projects it into the future. And it robs you of the only moment you have to create any change in your life. And so if we have all these habit cycles and these habit loops that are forming in our mind through all these well-worn neural pathways, how do you start to create new habits? And can you make happiness a habit, um, an addiction, if you will, instead of a negative uh, thing as an addiction? And so those are the concepts I started playing with when I was homeless. And uh, how did you, I mean, uh, that's a beautiful way to put it, that uh, fear is a thief. Uh, I've, I've never, again, heard it refer that way. But how did you start... You know, other than this log, how did you start kind of observing your your thoughts and changing? Because it seems like you had to do that before you started like really drastically going out there saying, hey, can I perform in your place? Yeah. You had to have a whole change of mindset. Yeah. When I was young and bar singing, um, when I was about eight, I watched people in pain. Uh, and I watched how people tried to handle pain. A lot of them used drugs or alcohol, kinds of medicating things to help themselves numb pain. And I saw that it actually never worked. Um, and so when I was eight, I sort of made this vow to never drink or do drugs and to try and handle pain as it happened because there really is no outrunning it. And I turned to writing because I was always attracted to writing from a young age. And I noticed again, whenever I wrote, my anxiety calmed down. And having read philosophy, I remember reading Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. And if I could refine that a little bit very humbly, I would say I perceive what I think, therefore I am. If you can perceive your thoughts, you're something other than your thoughts. If you can perceive you're sad, you're something other than sad. There's an observer in you observing that you're sad or observing that you're happy or observing that you're angry. And that concept um, for me was what really changed my life of going, all right, there's an, an observer. So if you use a car as a metaphor, so pretend your body's a car. What's the driver? Your brain is not the driver. Your brain is like this amazing steering wheel. It's a tool of the car. And your observer, what I call your greater sense of intelligence, that's actually the driver. Most of us don't have a relationship with the driver or the observer because we mistakenly think we are our thoughts. And we don't curate our thoughts. We don't discipline our thoughts. We just, any thought that comes into our head, we'll believe it and follow it. And even if it's not based in reality, and that's how these sort of anxiety cycles really start to kick up. And I, I think... Uh, the practice of that is extremely important, but it's extremely hard also at a, at a low and at a high. Mm -hmm. So even a high is just as bad as a low. Yeah. So when you, you know, you sold 30 million albums, you had one of the best-selling debut albums ever. Uh, when you're at that high, it's also hard to observe the thoughts and think, oh, well, I'm still, this is just a hot potato, like just like being, you know, incredibly sad is. Mm -hmm. But um, again, Our brains are very binary. Um, and so our brains have a lot in common with sea slugs, believe it or not, because we move toward pleasure and away from pain. We lay down memories to help us remember where pleasure is and where pain is. And so we create habit loops in our mind um, where there'll be a trigger and then an action and then a reward. And so it's, it's the same behavioral science of, an, of any animal, frankly. Dogs are trained this way. Um, and so it's learning how to work with your brain's habit loops um, and putting a positive action when you're stressed instead of a negative one. And then that becomes very addictive. And what's interesting about it is if you think about panic, anxiety, anger, do you have a tight feeling in your body or an expansive feeling? Uh, definitely a tight feeling. Yeah. So or if you sick. think of excitement. Or suicidal. And mm -hmm. that's addictive too. So 
how, when all of these things were piling on and things were horrible, as you say, it's addictive, how did you avoid not getting even suicidal about it? Well, I want to make one point about what you were saying about the highs um, being as hard as the lows. So if you think of excitement, do you think of a contractive feeling or an expansive one? Usually expansive because when, I, when I'm at a high, I do think that things are only going to get better, uh -huh. which is dangerous too. Yeah. It's actually a contractive feeling. And so science has been able to prove that excitement, people confuse excitement for happiness. Hmm. Um, excitement is actually constrictive. It's adrenaline and it's a funner, it's a much more fun feeling than feeling scared, but it's still a constrictive feeling. And so you can ad get addicted to distraction and, and the need for excitement and thrill as much as any other thing, which is so interesting. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be 
VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I'm actually going to totally change topics, yeah. but on that on that mm -hmm. route, uh, and then we'll get back. I told we sure. still have to get back to the original thing, which is when you were 19. But um, <laughs> in the middle of the book, you talk about you're, you're talking with Neil Young, which is an odd thing to say to somebody. Jewel, you, Jewel, were talking to Neil <laughs> Young and having a conversation, and he says, "Don't ever um, write for radio," mm -hmm. like meaning don't write for the hopes of a wide popular audience liking your stuff this yeah. is in some sense what he's saying and yet um this is related to what you were saying you, there's this pull between writing artistically for yourself and making music that you find beautiful and also it's certainly pleasurable to write something that sells 10 million albums because mm -hmm. you then you know oh they really like me yeah so how do you deal with that conflicting anxiety I was very lucky on my first album, I almost didn't sign my record deal and I turned down a million dollar signing bonus because I was scared when of When you were living in a, a, a homeless, When I was homeless, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I read a book and realized you owe them money back. And so I was going to make a folk record at the height of grunge. I didn't think my record would sell very well. I knew I was going to make a very honest record that was counterintuitive to what was happening in culture. 
And if I worked very hard, maybe I could get a career out of it. Um, and so I worked hard for that. I didn't think the record would blow up the way that it did. I didn't think anything had a shot at getting on the radio. Um, I ended up working very hard and ended up getting on the radio. I ended up doing really well. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait, what do you do now? Like, I don't know how I wrote a hit. They were just very sincere, earnest songs. And I don't know if I could do it again. And then I realized I made so much money on that first record that I didn't have to do anything else ever if I didn't want to. And so I really... But did you get addicted to the stimulus of, oh my God, Jewel, I love you. Like, I never did. I, how I always do you avoid saw, that? It's because, you know, when I was homeless, I was like, what is fame? Fame is a path a lot of people lose their footing on. And I don't, again, I'm like, I don't want to be a statistic. How do I avoid that happening to me? Because I'm a perfect candidate for fame ruining me because of a lot of emotional insecurities, especially at that age. And so I don't think fame changes you. It exaggerates. It just puts fuel on whatever little fire you have smoldering. So if you're insecure, you're going to get more insecure, not less. If you're an egomaniac, you're going to become a bigger egomaniac. You're not less of one. And so being aware of that, I tried to set up my career in a very specific way where I led with my flaws. Um, what I do you never mean you led with your flaws. I never tried to use art as propaganda to make myself seem more perfect than I was because mm -hmm. I never wanted to be put on a pedestal only to be knocked off of a pedestal when I never wanted to be on a pedestal in the first place. So I kept taking myself off of any pedestal by leading with these are my downfalls and these are my dreams. I'm a real human. Um, and that gave me room to grow and change and adapt um, in real time. And it also allowed me to sort of have this dialogue with my fans online and through the internet of talking about, you know, uh, if we have holes inside of us, you can't fill them from the outside. If you have an internal hole and you try and fill it from the outside, your hole's going to get deeper. It's actually not going to fill up. The only people that can create happiness, it's internal. It's an internal process. It isn't an external one. So you'll be very miserable if you're looking for approval by trying to validate it through fame or through applause. It'll make you a very unhappy person. And you'll be addicted to having to stay famous. And that to me is like hell. Like I would never want to do it. And yet, let's say you put out a record, particularly during these you know, early times, and not that many people liked it or didn't get good reviews yeah. or your fans were like, uh, uh, we're, we're not going to do 10,000 likes on this. We're only going to do like 12 likes on this. What, wouldn't that, wouldn't you feel a little bit like, oh, did I do something wrong? Like, wouldn't, what, it wasn't fan response part of the process of, um, you know, developing a style that you know would be, you know, a moneymaker for you because you had mm -hmm. to also make a living. Yeah. Every time I sang live, people responded to it. Um, I didn't have to change who I was to get that response. So I thought, you know, if push comes to shove and I never sell a record, I can sing live and I'll make a career this way. Um, but my first record was considered a failure for a year. And if I had taken that million-dollar signing bonus, I would have been dropped within six months because my mm -hmm. sales were so bad. And I definitely felt the pressure because, I, you know, you hear the stuff on radio and I was like, I can write that. Is that what it takes? And that's when Neil Young and Bob Dylan took me on the road and they Did just schooled me. And they were like, don't you dare. You stay just like you are and you keep doing it. And During that first year, did you cry about album sales? No, I didn't expect it to sell a lot. I knew what type of record I made. Um, for sure, but you do have fear that you'll get dropped from the label and you won't have the chance to keep getting the support to go out there and try and build something grassroots. But that's why I kept myself affordable. You know, every time there were factions in the label saying, hey, we should drop Jewel, it's been a year. I had champions that were saying, she cost us $12, what's it hurt? You know, let her keep, let her keep doing it. And I was slowly able to create that tide shift. And then the record did do well. So yeah, that was validating to be like, okay. What was the shift? Why did it suddenly go from like failure to success? Um, a couple things. A lot of time, the 
gatekeepers of an industry don't always sense change coming. And so grunge had had this tremendous movement of people expressing angst. I feel bad. I want to talk about the fact that I don't feel good. I'm not going to pretend things feel good. So that was grunge if you summed it up emotionally. I had felt that. I had just felt it several years before the grunge movement. And so I was solution-oriented of like, all right, there's no true cynic alive. They actually kill themselves. Everybody else is pretending to be a cynic so that they can protect their feelings of being vulnerable. I'm going to move toward feeling vulnerable because you're actually more safe the more honest you are. And so I started leading with somewhat of an antidote to where culture was all headed. Everybody was starting to go, okay, how long can you feel bad? Now what am I going to do about it? And that's where I happened to be in my life and in my music. And so I think it was just the right time, right place. And I did, you know, 700 shows a year and I did two and three cities a day and I worked my hiney off to try and create that tide shift. 700 shows a year. Easily, yeah. I bet this it's was four and five shows. This was the of the album? I did that for probably three or four years. I was doing easily. Like, I mean, I was doing two and three, four, five shows a day sometimes. So so then, um, so 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 basically, 19, the, <laughs> the, you're, you start singing at that one cafe you were talking about. The record executives start to notice. They offer you the million dollars. I, again, I just... You can only relate to what your own experiences are to, to some extent. And and I can't imagine being homeless and turning down a million-dollar check. I just can't imagine doing it. Yeah. Like, but but you did the research. You saw that you were thinking long-term. Somehow you had this talent of thinking long-term. And I saw this continually throughout the book. Uh, you, you took a long-term stance where I think most people would think very short-term. Mm. Where, do you, where do you think you got that ability to think long-term about these sort of almost life-or-death situations? When I was... Living in Alaska, I watched nature a lot. I learned a lot about life and being a human by watching nature. Um, you see a lot of patterns. You see a lot about how everything works. Uh, nature is an amazing teacher. And one of the things I learned was that hardwood grows slowly. And that's not the sexiest life motto, but it's been my life motto. Um, I would see the softwood trees shoot up really quickly and then just fall over. And I wanted to be a hardwood tree. I wanted to have a beautiful shape. I wanted my life to have meaning. And why do these hardwood trees that are so dense never fall over in a storm? What does that? I wanted to be that shape. And so I set about trying to really think about, you know, there is no shortcut. Shortcuts lead to softwood trees that fall over quickly. So it helped me in every aspect of my life from how I was thinking about my career. So when I got signed, I go, all right, Joel, why are you doing this? Do you want to be famous? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be an artist? Like, what's your goal? All of those goals are fine, by the way. I don't think one's better than the other. It's just what is speaking to your soul. And for me, I wanted to be an artist. And so that meant, you know, as you make 100 decisions every day, it has to be based on what your values are. So if you can identify your values in one of the exercises, um, I'm launching a website called Jewel Never Broken. And so I share a lot of the tools and exercises that helped me in these times of my life of like hardwood grows slowly and identifying your values. So that becomes your compass. And every day that you make decisions, make sure decisions are in line with those values and those goals. And you're going to end up where you want to end up. But a lot of us don't think that far ahead and we don't act in line with our values. And it's kind of like being in a car with no direction. You just kind of wander around life and you wake up at 40 and 50 and go, my life doesn't feel like me. Who am I? Well, well, let me ask you about that because, and then I want to get to some other catastrophes in your life because <laughs> those are always the, the funnest to talk to. Um, let's say you wake up in your 40s or 50s and you're like, what have I been doing? What do you do? You started you, you started singing at five. Like most people can't do that. Yeah. Um, you course correct. 
when we all are raised with these filters. So in our family, we're raised with an ideology and a system of belief. And when we become teenagers, we start to question that. We begin to have autonomy and separate out. And then we dream our own dream. Um, and if you're lucky in your 20s, you might have a job or a career that was in line with what those goals were as a teenager. But now that you're in your 20s, you had a dream come true of a teenager and it might not always fit you in your 20s. And so you have to readapt your filter, relook through a lens and go, all right, what is my reality currently? Who am I currently? And how do I make my outer world match my inner world? And you make some shifts. You make some decisions about love, about the friends you surround yourself in, about maybe changing your career or getting more serious about whatever. Is and it possible, then, do you think, to make the change at uh, in, in your 50s or 40s? Absolutely. Um, you do it over and over and over in your life. You constantly are course correcting. Um, and I think the more comfortable a person can get with the idea that we're always changing, no matter what, and you can change with it or you can try not to change. When you don't recognize change happening around you and you're late to the game, your course corrections have to be bigger. There's like bigger Hail Mary moves. That happened to me during my divorce. You know, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm not the woman I want my son to know. And I had to make some really big course corrections. In what way weren't you the woman you wanted your son to know? I was in a situation just within myself where parts of me had become domesticated that shouldn't have. Um, I needed some of the wildness in my heart to come back out and to be able to express itself. I had become very muted and very tamed and very small from a lot of the damage and trauma of my life. And I didn't realize it happened, but it did. And all of a sudden, when I looked at my son, I was like, I, I saw it all. But I, I sort of see that, so we're, we're kind of f skipping different pieces. And I know um, you have a, a time constraint, but I do want to mention when you were there was a period you were making so much money. Your mom was managing your money. You you lost all your money. You went broke. So again, mm -hmm. you went from homeless to riches to totally broke and millions and in debt. Yeah. You fired your mom. You haven't spoken to her since I guess two thousand three. Mm -hmm. Um. She did. Again, I encourage people to read the book. The story is fascinating. But again, you had to reinvent yourself and find this kind of um, you know, inner strength to 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 keep going and to to make back your wealth and, and bring back your art and so on. Maybe kind of the intensity of that led to this relationship where you started to get more and more muted because you felt safe there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Realizing the truth about my mom and I's relationship was a really difficult uh, time in my life. It literally felt like my mind was made out of glass and somebody had just shattered it into a million pieces. And then I was looking in the mirror one day and I was like, oh, you know, what if I'm looking at this problem wrong? What if it's not that I'm broken? What if it's, there's part of me that exists whole at all times? Um, and I just have to do a very loving archaeological dig back to my whole self. Um, and so getting rid of all the things. How do you do an archaeological dig? Um, I played a game called Self and Other. It's something, it's an exercise I'll be offering on my website um, where anything that made me feel anxious were usually thoughts that didn't belong to me. It was lies my brain was telling me. Anything that made me feel calm and expansive, I was like, that's me. That's who I am in my real nature before the trauma and the abuse and the heartache and the betrayal and all these things. And I was able to find my way back to that. And I didn't have therapists at the time. Um, I didn't trust anybody to have any kind of, you know, say over my brain. Um, and that's why I really built the website is because happiness is for everybody. You don't have to have the right therapist or the right car or the right house or even have a house. Uh, it really has to do with our thoughts. Buddha was right, I guess. <laughs> well, so, so um, you know, you realize at some point your mom was grossly mismanaging your money and your career and a, a lot of things. Um, you had this this break with her. Do you think it's ever possible? Like, 
just as you kind of rebuilt your relationship with your father after, um, you know, you had this intense childhood that was abusive in various ways, and but now you've rebuilt this beautiful relationship with your father, do you think you'll ever talk to your mom again? I mean, I would never say never. Um, the reason my dad and I have a relationship is because my dad's really earned it. Um, he did a lot of the work that it takes to... I forgave him instantly, and... Um, I was right there in step with my mom. You know, I look at myself as culpable, frankly. Uh, but the difference for me, and I forgave my mom instantly uh, as well. I think that, you know, forgiveness is is the last way to free yourself. You know, it's a gift you give yourself. It's not for somebody else. Um, mm. But the difference for me and my mom and my dad is my dad did the work it took to change his behaviors. Um, so to earn back a relationship actually takes new interactions, new behavior changes, um, so and working really on yourself. So forgiveness is a gift you give yourself, but the other side, just because you forgive them doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a relationship yeah. with you again. No, no forgetting to, forgiving doesn't mean condoning. Forgiving doesn't mean you get a relationship you know, granted to you. It just means you quit. You know, you quit holding that heaviness in your heart. You let it go. You forgive and you feel love. And um, so, so, so after this moment when you kind of took charge of your career again, did you have faith that okay, I'm just going to make a bunch more albums and I'm so great that everyone's <laughs> going to buy them and I'm going to you know rebuild again? No, I've never had hubris and I've never been arrogant. I've never felt entitled. Um, and which not only that, worked you switched genres. My, you went to. I did. It happened at a risky a time. Yeah. I went into the pop world thinking I was completely safe. I didn't know that I was broke at the time, you know? So I was like, I get to take any risk I want. Like, it doesn't matter if it fails. It doesn't matter if it succeeds. I'm going to do what Bob Dylan told me and follow my muse. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was like, once I found out, you know, at the height, like, right when I dropped this pop record, which was a very risky thing to do, you know, I found out, oh my God, I actually do need the money. Wow, I hope this works. Um, but I don't believe in letting fear rule my life. Like, it's just not what I'm going to let happen. Um, all I can do is show up and really commit myself and work hard. And so that's what I did. And luckily, you know, it really worked out. But it, talk about stressful. Well, what if it hadn't it was worked stressful. out? Like, how would you have dealt with the stress? And you owed like millions of dollars. Yeah. I always figure things out, you know, but that's the thing is if you let yourself get obsessed about the future that hasn't happened yet, you can't show up right now to do a thing mm. about it. So mm. learning to mitigate my stress, keeping up my mindfulness and my meditation, staying very focused on what step can I do today is the type of thing that got me out of jam after jam. What's the what's the next reinvention for you? <laughs> it's funny. I don't see them as reinventions as much as becoming more myself with time. Um, I think grace is a refinement of a soul through time, and I'm just getting better at making my outer world match my inner world. Uh, it's well, a journey in learning and growing and pushing myself and pushing the edges of who I am, the edges of the definitions of who I perceive myself to be is a the best creative project. You know, it's better than any song. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about... Um, almost sort of self-help or personal improvement type themes. And now you're starting that site, uh, jewelneverbroken.com. This book, uh, you know, Never Broken. Songs are only half the story. This has come out and it has, again, that personal improvement type of style. And mm -hmm. it, you talk a lot about kind of the, the development of your musical style and how you go about it. And I, I definitely encourage people to, to read it for that as well. But again, it's a, it's a beautiful book. I encourage people to buy the book, to visit the website, Jewel, thanks so much for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank and, you. We covered uh, a lot of ground. <laughs> this is I'm going to give you another Grammy for a great book and podcast <laughs> and all-around music, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.